give God's word, I'd love for you to take it and turn to Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. Ephesians chapter number 4. I'm sorry, I was thinking of the offering passage. Uh, it's actually Ephesians chapter 2, just a couple chapters back. Forgive me. Ephesians chapter number 2. And um, if you've been with us for uh, probably the last year, you know that we've been through um, the book of Mark. We've taken it as our task uh, from the pulpit on Sunday mornings to teach through the entirety of the book of Mark. And man, we've hit the halfway mark this past Lord's Day. And we finished up with chapter number 8. Um, but for, you, for those of you that weren't here, um, occasionally I'll take small excursions. Um, as the Lord provokes my, my thinking on various issues, um, particularly um, issues of the day, um, pastoral issues, things that need to be addressed from the pulpit, uh, things that are on your mind, things that are on my mind. And it may not always make sense to you, and sometimes it doesn't always make sense to me why the Lord takes us um, where he takes us. Um, but I pray that it will be a blessing to you. Um, as I mentioned last week, um, we're going to start a short series on the church and take a systematic approach to understanding the doctrine of the church or the teaching of scriptures on the church. Um, and I particularly was led this way as I finished preaching through Mark chapter number 8 and, and the things that have happened in recent days, you know, in the last year, um, all of the unrest, all of the chaos, um, the virus, um, all the fear, all the worry, all the anxiety, um, the president um, who's going to step into office, who is um, blatantly anti-Christian in thought and in deed. Um, and what that means for the church, you know? And what that means for us in future days. I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, but I am a, um, a man who desires to know the truth and to know God's word. And uh, the handwriting's on the wall, you know? And the church has always been, uh, really, uh, as I said last week, um, we are truly, as, an, as the American church, an anomaly geographically and historically with the amount of pleasure and comfort that we have been privy to over the past um, two centuries, particularly in the last century, which has probably led to much of the apathy, the indifference, and just the, um, yeah, the apathy, the indifference, and just the um, confusion about what God desires for the people of God. Um, so in coming days, it, um, it, in, it, it behooves me um, to try to impart to you who we are as a people, what God desires of us as a church. Now, in thinking about that, I mentioned last week uh, something that has plagued my mind uh, has also been just um, what may be coming down the pike. In my personal position as a father and as a husband, as a leader of a home, and as a pastor of a church, uh, the responsibility to uh, train and to teach and to disciple and to prepare for when that day comes, you know? As a church, what will we do? Um, as an individual, we all like to think that we would take up sword like Peter and cut off a guy's ear, you know? Be ready to fight. Um, not realizing that just a few days later, you know, we'll bow the knee to a little girl um, as we deny Christ before men. And are we truly ready? I know that you like to 
think that you are. I know that I like to think that I am. Um, that I would give my life in a moment for, um, for my Savior. Um, but the truth is, is that if we're not willing to give our lives now, you know, in daily walk with Jesus Christ, in a personal relationship with Him, how in the world could we ever expect that when that day comes and He requires something greater of us, um, that we'll be, able, we'll be willing to lay that down, you know? A lot of people ask me the question, um, and I, I've got it, and I've asked myself, and I'm somewhat boggled in my mind as to how to answer it, you know, like in this age, what do we do? You know, as things come down the pike and things arise, how does a Christian respond? And in some sense, I don't know how to answer the question, because I, I think the answer is, is that we should already do what we've been doing. Or maybe it's that we've not been doing what we should have been doing, you know? But the church doesn't ever change its direction, even in the midst of persecution, the church is an entity. It is, it is what it is. We're not to change anything I mean, inherently about what we're doing in the midst of what's happening now and in the midst of the coming days and the way that I need to train my children is not to change strategy unless the strategy that we've been um, engaged in for the last you know, five years or 20 years as a Christian or 30 years or however long you've been um, has been inherently unbiblical. Um, we should be doing the same thing in the coming days as we are doing today if it is what God truly desires. We don't change form. Uh, we don't change with the culture. We don't change this and that, you know, depending upon the newspaper and what's going on around in the world around us. Christians, um, Christians inherently um, should be the same, whether they're in the home or whether they're in the church or whether they're in the culture as they carry Christ with them. Um, a character and a nature, um, essentially we are to be the same. I guess the question for us this morning is, is, what are we? You know, what are we? What is a church? Let's read Ephesians chapter 4. Um, and this makes me very uncomfortable today. I love verse by verse preaching and going through the Bible. And this is somewhat of a topical sermon, um, which, uh, sorry, Ephesians chapter 2. Um, it's, it's somewhat of a topical sermon to prepare us for the coming weeks as to what the true nature of the church is. What is the church? What, how should the church function? What should the church look like? Um, these, these are things. How should you as an individual function within the church? Um, is this essential? Is what we're doing this morning essential? Um, is it something that, that, that God requires of us and thus whenever something comes down the pike, um, what we carry on, you know? Um, is this a moral issue? Is gathering together on the Lord's day a moral issue? Is this what God commands? Is this what God requires? Um, and if it is, then are we willing to take that stand um, in the coming days? These are questions we need to answer. And I think that answering those questions will prepare us for what we are to do. To know what we are um, is, to, is to know what, what we are to do. Um, so we're going to spend a few weeks just on the basics. And it's going to seem somewhat rudimentary. It's going to seem somewhat elementary. It's going to seem somewhat basic. And you're going to be saying, like, we already know this. Uh, I'm not asking you inherently, do you know this? But have you appropriated it by faith to where you believe this and you're willing to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus? You know, in the past days, we've spent you know, three sermons, particularly at the end of uh, Mark chapter number 8, and, and we, we, we honed in on those verses, and we spent a lot of time, man, and God just um, really uh, impressed upon my heart just the truth of that scripture and, and uh, what the Christian life looks like and, 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 and inherently appropriating the gospel by faith and what that looks like in my life as a, as a husband, as a father, as a Christian, as, a, as an elder, as a pastor, as a friend, as a brother, as a son. Like, what does that look like um, in my life? And in some sense, 
Um, I, I, I'm springboarding off of that passage of Scripture to say, you know, when that happens, when that takes place in a believer's life, what does he springboard into? What does the Christian life look like? I um, mean, I think it looks like this. I think it looks like a church. I think it looks like individual responsibility carried out with, uh, within a corporate gathering. Um, I think that if you separate Christianity like America has in former days and in present days and make it um, simply a personal relationship with Jesus, you know, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. You know, that is, that is, that is the farthest from Scripture. You rip the individual Christian life out of the context of, 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 the, of the church, then you can make little to no sense of the entirety of the New Testament. You know, it is fashioned within the church. The book of Acts is the history of the New Testament church. Um, the Gospels um, are the, the record of Jesus Christ, uh, life and ministry and giving His life, as Ephesians tells us in chapter 5, for the church. Um, the epistles are written to churches as Paul takes up his pen by the power of the Spirit of God. Um, even this morning, he writes to the church at Ephesus. And he writes these words in Ephesians chapter number 2. In verse number 11. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit, fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for another blessed Lord's Day. And um, it's just good to talk to you. It's good to enter in boldly to the throne room of Grace Father and ask you um, for things that I cannot deliver myself. Uh, Father, we need you this morning. We come utterly desperate uh, to the Word of God, Father, um, to the feet of the Spirit, and beg you to accomplish things that we can never accomplish in and of ourselves. Father, we pray that we would not try to do that this morning. Um, Father, I pray that I wouldn't. And I pray that I wouldn't steal any glory. Um, Father, I pray that I wouldn't um, preach any opinions. I pray, Father, that um, I would stay faithful to the Word. Um, Father, and it worries me this morning because my heart is um, racing this morning. My, my, my mind is distracted. and um, Father, I, I feel like I, I can't even think a sober thought this morning for more than a, a moment. Uh, so I pray now, Father, that you would just help me um, to just stay my mind and my inner man, Father, and just to um, and just to fix it upon you and your glory and your honor and your praise and to give you what is worthy. And I don't doubt that there's many people here in the same condition, Lord. Um, 
whose minds are just racing, Father, who's um, so, so, or so easy at this moment, distracted, their hearts are uh, burdened down, Father, and they're carried away by a number of things, the cares of this world or the philosophies and the doctrines of men, Father, or maybe by themselves. Uh, the world, the flesh, and the devil just um, come with full force, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would just help them this morning by your Spirit to just take a few moments, Father, and focus in upon you. Um, Father, I pray that um, the cross would be exalted, that Christ would be made manifest, Father, in the gathering of his people. Father, we pray that you just give us ears to hear this morning, eyes to see, and a tender heart ready to receive God's word. And whatever you may speak to us this morning, Father, that you would just help us to receive it with joy. Joy unspeakable and full of glory, um, because this is a portion of what Christ accomplished in his death. So, Father, may we be faithful to you in this moment. And may you accomplish eternal things as we approach your word by his grace. Amen. Amen. I would just say another note. I generally don't like to preach like this, but I think it's necessary to give you an introduction. Um, I really wanted to read just Ephesians 1 through 3 this morning, but for time's sake, we wouldn't, wouldn't do that. But the sermon is going to be rooted particularly in Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 2, and Ephesians chapter 3 this morning. So I want to encourage you um, sometime this week to take time and just read the context. Be good Bereans. I don't want to um, give any opinions or any uh, notion that I'm up here this morning preaching um, anything that I, I desire, and I take a text and I just run with it. Um, but it seems necessary to take it as a whole to lay the introduction for um, what Christ accomplished um, by creating the church and what he desires to accomplish in the church. So it seemed necessary for this foundation. So I would begin simply by asking a question, um, what is the church? You know, what is a church? It seems like a simple question, probably an unnecessary question um, to many of us. But what if I were to ask you to take out a pen and paper and write a two-sentence summary of that question? What would you say? And then when you're done, I ask you outside of it to write in the parenthesis your scriptural support for that answer. I mean, your definition is based upon scripture, right? What does the New Testament have to say about the church, if anything? Or does it even matter, you know? Does it even matter how we do church? Some would argue, yes, it matters. And with that dogmatism, they would meet weekly, uh, dressed in a particular way, singing exclusively the Psalms, a cappella, because musical instruments are non-inspired songs and they're prohibited in the worship of God. Or they'll gather together around a single translation. They'll gather together with a certain type of garb. They'll gather together with a certain style of music. And they will dogmatically and legalistically say, you know, um, anybody else that does it, um, even a, a minutia of, um, uh, to the west or to the east or to the north or to the south um, is clearly liberal and don't understand the scriptures, right? If you do step outside of that, they, they uh, dogmatically argue that you're offering strange fire upon the worship of God and you're in danger of, um, of meeting judgment. Or maybe it doesn't matter that much at all. I mean, it's not, much about, it's not so much about what you do, some would say, but about the spirit in which you do it. After all, God understands. So bring your shallow music, your entertainment groups, your smoke machines, your party favors, your dance routines, etc. into the house of God. 
uh, because we want to fill God's house with God's people. We want to be attractive. Is that right? Most of you probably say, no, no, that's, that's not right. We need to be somewhere in the middle. Yeah, but the middle's so large. It's huge, you know? So what is right? Are they all right? Are any of them right? Does the New Testament speak to this um, at all? You say yes, then what does it say? You know, if I... And I ask you to provoke that thought and for a minute just to think, what is, what is right? You know, if I were to find a John Doe, um, a totally uninformed man on an isolated foreign island, and I gave him a Bible in his language, who knew nothing of Christianity and never seen the Word of God before, and he read it, man, and God just gloriously saved his ever-dying soul, just made him, I mean, the Spirit of God just invaded his heart, and he took the Word of God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and he read it, you know? Um, and you were to ask him, according to what he's read, what should a church look like? What do you think he would say? I mean, you come here together here this morning and we see it. Is this, is this what he would come up with? Honestly. And maybe it is and maybe it isn't. That's the question, you know? You know, somebody who takes the Word of God and he just sits down without any presuppositions, and that's probably impossible to find, um, but he takes the New Testament and he walks through the Gospels, he walks through the Old Testament, um, he particularly goes through the Epistles, he looks at the Church of Acts and he sees how they operated, the things that they did, the things that they didn't do, the things that they emphasized and the things that they didn't. Um, and, you know, and you go to the Epistles and you see the instruction to the churches um, you know, and you wonder, after a period of time with no interaction with anybody else, no traditional churches, has no idea of church history, um, never walked into a Baptist church, never been a Methodist, never looked at a Presbyterian, never seen a hymn book, you know, uh, never, never seen any of the religious garb, knows nothing about the priest or the Catholicism or the Pope or anything at all. Um, is this what he, honestly, is this it? Is this it? Is this what you would come up with? You know, what does a New Testament church look like? What are the things that the writers of the New Testament, um, particularly the Apostle Paul, Peter, Jesus Himself, um, you know, what, what do they emphasize? And it sounds like a, a simple question, you know. What is a church? What does it look like? What does it even mean to be a church? What does it look like to go to church? What constitutes a church? You know, if you were to plant a church, what kind of church would you plant? And it, and it sounds so rudimentary, but if you look around, it gets complicated extremely quick. Why? Because you look at this church and you go to a different church and you go to a Presbyterian church and you go to a Methodist church, you go to a Church of Christ and a non-denominational church, you go to a Pentecostal church, you go to um, a Roman Catholic church, and what you see is a whole host of differences among what constitutes what they would deem to be a church. There's no question that the word itself, church, conjures up all kinds of things in the minds of men and women. The term church is a word that is very often misunderstood. You say it and immediately people uh, think or talk in terms of buildings and, uh, that look a certain way or carry a certain tone. Um, they're, they're almost uh, visually noticeable um, by nature. You can generally look at a building and a structure and for the most part you can tell whether it's a church or not. Why? Because of the stained glass and the steeples. Or you may think of church and denominational structures that you've known or you've come out of. 
Um, when you say church, some may speak in terms of individuals that they see in the street who are dressed in a certain way, wear a certain collar, um, look like a, a man in a suit and a tie, and you may think, man, he looks like, like a preacher. I went to a seminary particularly that um, I, I remember going to work at a hospital afterwards, and there was a, a particular rally that some of our, uh, my coworkers went to, and they went to our church in this rally um, for a, a, it was a, it was outside of church, it was a political candidate. And we, we gathered together, and uh, she looked at me afterwards, and she said, this is what she said about the whole rally. She said, man, I went to that church, and, and you all looked exactly the same, you know? It was like a cookie-cutter mentality. Um, sorry. A cookie-cutter mentality that we went, and they, they, they produced a certain type of man that was uh, to be for a certain type of church, and, and all of us began to look and to sound and to, and to look the same. We were very um, ecclesiastical, very churchy. Um, some have another misunderstanding represented you know, and the misunderstandings are, are, um, are almost limitless some people look at the church and they view it as an object of skepticism if you talk with them for any length of time they'll speak of the hypocrisy that they've encountered and they may also speak of the harm that they've experienced you know, I don't like those people they may say I don't want to go there ever again after all it's a, it's a place full of hypocrites and there's never a place I've been more harmed than in this church or in so-and-so's church or whatever that may be. And at the same time, the church is increasingly marginalized in the minds of men and women. The churches in the West particularly, in our culture, is increasingly pushed to the periphery. Um, you can, and it may seem minute and minor to you, but it's hard to find a church now in these days in the midst of a community. Whereas in the foundings of America and even in the UK, uh, it used to be at one time small villages would constitu be constituted by churches. And you would find that in the midst of the community was not only the, uh, the, 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 the political power, but also the church. Why? Because church was in the midst of a community life. Um, now it's hard to find in the midst of a downtown um, community life that is the center of um, that actual community. Um, others believe that um, uh, church is basically benign. It's harmless. Almost a cute and sentimental idea like going for a walk on a spring day. Um, it's harmless either way. It's really an institution to drive the imaginations of our children and teach them ethics. Or it's more for retired men and women in their older age because it's something that can keep them busy um, as they've given up um, their, 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 their sub the substance of their real life. I mean, it's for the kind of people that like singing in choirs and doing weird things like that. In essence, they're saying it's basically useless other than being a benign distraction. I remember as a young man going to church as a teenager, that was kind of the, the thought life, you know? Take your sister. Um, it's something good for you and her to do. I'm going to be something wonderful for her. Um, but when you grow up, you need to leave that behind and think like men. For others, it's just bizarre. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's me some days. At the least, it seems like for some people, like a strange group of people using language that you can't understand to talk about things that probably don't exist at all while doing strange things as they gather together weekly when they could be doing more important things with their lives. At worst, people think it's so bizarre that it's, um, it's a cult. Some are. It's a group of fanatic zealots plotting to take over the world because of an ancient book of antiquity that's 90% of it um, should, be a burnt, should have been burned and abandoned long ago. Many think it's bizarre because of the nature of a common book upon which most Christians can't even agree. 
Right? You have Baptists, Lutherans, Catholics, Methodists, Presbyterians, Pentecostals, non-denominationals, and when you speak to half of them, they don't believe that the other half are even believers. They look at each other like they're heretics, and they all are very particular about how they worship, and they look strangely upon the others because they don't, because they come to the Bible and it seems like it's just clear to them. You know? Maybe some of you have come here this morning. You look around and you'll think, you know, some strange things they've done because you're used to a certain particular um, type of worship that, um, that, that your pastor or your elders have been very dogmatic about. Or maybe you're dogmatic about it in your own life. Um, some preach loud and long. Some soft and short. Some pastors, some elders, some men, some women, some, they all preach. Some sing over an hour with a worship band. Some sing from a hymn book, relatively short. Some baptized by immersion, others infants. Some for salvation and some for not. Some meet in large auditoriums and some in homes. Some as families and some segregated. Some preach verse by verse, some topical. Some instruments, some without. Some with modest dress, others with not. Most acting like the each, each other. Um, and some, just to be honest, because um, they don't. They don't fellowship, no fellowship. Some this or some that. And what's right? What's wrong? What's the church? Is it some of that? Is it all of that? Or is it none of that? What's its purpose? What's its drive? What's its reach? Who are they? Where are they going? How do they differ from other God-ordained institutions? What's their role in society? Some say it's to win the community to Christ. Some say it's to be a social institution, to feed the homeless. Some say it's to lift up the community, some to teach the community, some to help um, the needy, some to transform the community, some to take over the community. Do these questions even matter? I think they do. I think that at the fundamental level, we must get to the questions and we must answer them. I think to get them wrong is to get just about everything wrong. Yeah, you think about it again, it seems kind of mundane and benign, but it's not. You know, think about the other God-ordained institutions that we've got wrong in recent days. Think about the family. What happens when you get the family wrong? You, you say family to somebody and to anybody in our culture, and it's like they all have an idea of what the family is. It's something inherent. It's something innate. It's something um, that whether we agree uh, about the Christian traditional beliefs or what the Bible says about it or not, um, there's, there's kind of a universal aspect to human life that says there's something important about the family. Um, but you also see that when the family goes awry and the husbands and, 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 and fathers and, and wives and mothers and children um, begin to misunderstand why God ordained and why created and, and what their purpose is, that it, be, that, 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 that it begins to leak into every area of life. You know, Think about the government. Think about the government. I mean, what's the role of a governing body? You know? What's the role of the institution that God has placed over us? And what happens when they get it wrong? You see what happens when they get it wrong. What does the Bible teach about the governing authorities over us? Paul writes in Romans 13 and Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, um, his epistle to the church and to you and to me that it is to restrain evil and to uphold that which is good. You know? You look at our governing body and the system that is over us and what do you see? You see them stepping outside the boundaries that God ordained and it's made it a mess. I mean, what are they supposed to do? They're supposed to restrain evil and to uphold that which is good. And long ago, somebody got some good ideas about um, government power and, and trying to take care of the weak and to try to take care of the needy and to try to feed the homeless. And 
And they got a great idea about education. Let me ask you this. What does the Bible say that the government has a role in education? None. Zero. It has no role in education. Um, the parents, the church, education is a God-ordained command to be given to um, the, the, the parental unit and to the church of God to train up children in the way that they ought to go. I mean, they begin reaching into the education and training up men, and we become as a society more, um, more uh, enslaved to those that are over us. And we become dependent upon them, therefore they're able to control. And now, um, if you put your child in an institution, um, it's inevitable that um, what the government desires for them to be taught will come down the pike. You know, what, is it, what, is the government, what does the Bible say that a government has to do in, in health care? You know, absolutely nothing. Nothing. They're to restrain evil and to uphold that which is good. Now, there are certain things that they can do, and there are certain things, uh, depending upon a culture, that is okay for them to do. Uh, but when they become um, so influential that we as a society become dependent upon them um, to feed our bellies and to, and to sustain our checkbooks, and we become too dependent because it's at that moment that they can control society. Um, the family's falling apart. You know, you say something about government, though, and everybody kind of understands who they are and what they... they but, but you get a different, a different definition from everybody. You know, in the same with the church, you fundamentally misunderstand the church. You say church to everybody and it's like they have some idea, especially in an American culture of exactly what that might be or what that should look like. Um, and you get all sorts of different ideas. But what is it? You know, at the bottom of the, uh, the bottom line, at the end of the day, what is the church and does it matter? And I think that it matters. I think that it's essential that we know that when we come in here this morning, that what we're doing um, is, is, is honoring to God and pleasing to Him. Why? Because the book of Ephesians and, and many other places in the New Testament um, lay hold of the, the reality of who and what God's church is. Who is God's church? Or what is God's church? You could almost say and ask the same question or at least a nuance to it. Who is God's church? And when you come to the, the Bible, it's pretty clear who God's church is. That the church finds its origin in a divine nature, in a divine work. That the church finds its origin in the plan of God from before the ages began. When you read the New Testament, when you read the book of Ephesians in particularly, um, what you find is that the church is not a man-made institution. Um, it's not an institution that's to gather together and do what feels right and feels good and this and that. Um, that it is an institution that God ordained, that Jesus Christ died for. He has a purpose in, and it will culminate one day in a fantastic and great wedding in which all the world will um, see the sons of God and be enamored. Um, that, that, that God's church was actually the purpose in Christ, um, not this year, not last decade, not last century. It, did, it wasn't an idea that came into existence in the New Testament times. It wasn't like Jesus came along and everything else prior to that failed for some reason. Everything that God is ordaining and the covenants that He's making and the plans um, that He's organizing um, up until that point just keep seeming to fail. So He's going to change directions and He's going to move in another way. Why? Because let's try this out. And the New Testament church became a brand new ideal to which God could operate in the world. Like That's not how the, 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 the Old Testament or the New Testament um, looks at it at all. The book of Ephesians is a, is a monumental account for the life of any believer. And in the life of any church, 
So I would commend to you Ephesians chapter 1 through 3 as you learn of who you are in Christ. You learn in chapters 1 through 3 who we are in Him and what He desires in us. You learn identity. And in learning identity, um, chapters 4 through 6 teach us about what we are to do. That if you'll give yourselves over to Ephesians 1 through 3, you'll find out who you are and your identity in Christ. And that will dictate 4 through 6 to understand how you are to walk in this world. That's why in chapter 4 and verse 1, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, uh, bearing with one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit. This is who you are. So this is what you're to do. We, need, we, we fundamentally need to get to the answer to the question, who are we? To understand in this age what we are to do. That if you miss who you are and what you are and how God made you, and what, then, then you'll, you'll, you'll inevitably miss, inimitably miss, and monumentally miss what you are to do in this world. You know? And I talk, to, I talk to myself on many days and I talk to other Christians and, and we stand around wringing our hands about what's going on in the world and everything that's falling apart. And, and, and it seems so simple to me sometimes, yet so profound and so hard. You know, what am I to do? What am I to do? And I simply ask them and I ask myself, who are we? Who am I? Who am I in Christ? Because Ephesians 1-3 through dictates Ephesians 4-6. through we want to know what we are or, or who we are, what we are to do in this age, in this hour. Um, I, I, I beg you to, to, to just think for a few moments this morning on, uh, a simple, on simply who are you in Christ? Who are we as individuals? Who are we as a church? Because I don't know that many of us, me and myself on some days, understand that concept. We don't understand who we are. We don't understand the benefits. We don't understand the blessings. We don't understand the reality. We don't understand, therefore, how to live and what we are to do. Paul lays it out for us here. He begins the argument in a time before time began. And that's a hard concept to even grasp, right? Think about it for a moment. Um, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's mind-blowing. But he speaks a time before any epic, any era, he speaks of a plan of God being established before even a blade of grass ever bursts through the dirt or a hydrogen and oxygen molecules ever bind together and constitute a drop of water. Before Paul teaches us concerning, the, uh, concerning who we are and what we are to do, he speaks of us concerning the ultimate plan of God in Ephesians chapter 1. And Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 continue to delineate that point of to which before Christ was somewhat of a mystery, he says. That even the fathers, the patriarchs, the great men of old weren't fully privy to it. But Paul here pulls back the veil to teach those who are at Ephesus and teach us um, that if we are Christ, who we are in Christ. And that we weren't a second thought and we weren't a plan B or a plan C. That we were actually the plan all along in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 1 and verse number 7, you read these words. Um, actually, we can begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. 
having predestined us to the adoption as sons of Jesus Christ, to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks to you, or for, to, to, to him, give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit and wisdom of revelation in knowledge of Him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. In verse number 20, which He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. And he goes on to speak about um, his, his right hand in heavenly places, authority given to him. Verse 21, far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I know that's a long passage. But to give you the, the context and the idea is that Paul is arguing that, that, that the church is not a new growth out of the New Testament era. That the church has always been the plan of God in ages past, even before the world ever began. There was a time when Jesus Christ Himself, the Father and the Son, and, I, and I can, we could go to many places in the Old Testament, in which there was a transaction that was made, a covenant, I believe, between the triune God, in which the Father, the Son, and the Spirit come together and they determine among themselves um, this world, this entity, this universe, this time in which Jesus Christ would enter into of His own willing accord and His own voluntary will. And He would give Himself upon a cross for a people, for a bride. That the church of God, the church of Christ, you and I, me, this thing here this morning, you know, like it didn't come into existence five years ago when we constituted as a church with two couples. This thing came in existence in the mind of God ages ago before uh, the world was ever created, the oceans were ever filled, and the trees ever sprouted forth, and before Adam and Eve were ever constituted in their marriage. That this thing here was ordained by God Himself. And you can read about it all throughout the Old Testament. You can read about it all throughout the New Testament. You can read about it in Genesis 3.15. You can read about it whenever the promise is made after Adam and Eve's fall that, that one would come to crush the head of the serpent, or the serpent and that, uh, that, 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 the bruise of his, that, that the bruise of this man would be healed. And you can read in the New Testament that John, I believe, is referencing that when he says that the devil um, was, was destroyed, the works of the devil were destroyed. You carry on and you see Adam or Noah in the ark, which I believe is a type of Christ and a, a type of judgment that came upon the ark, but they were safe in Him. 
You can go on and you can find Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 20 and 22 where covenant is made with him. In Galatians, Paul looks back through that covenant that was made to him. And while there's true physical promises for the nation of Israel, he says there's another layer on top of it. That the gospel was preached to Abraham in the promise that all the nations through his seed, the seed being singular Christ, would be blessed. That there would be one that would come that would crush the head of the serpent. He would be the ark in which men would come and find safety and security. He would be the one in which would come in human flesh as the seed of Adam, the seed of a woman who would carry a similar nature yet without sin and that He would be a blessing to the nations. That Ephesians chapter 2 here, when it speaks of this one man coming together in the text that we read, that we as Gentiles, you and me, Americans, outside of the nation of Israel, outside of the promises, outside of the covenants, become heirs of those promises. That this was ordained in the Old Testament, but even prior to that, in the very plan, nature, character of God. That the church finds its origin in the mind of God. And the church finds its origin in time and reality totally by the agency of God. Uh, chapter one and verse number, or chapter two and verse number one, and you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit who now walks in the sons of disobedience. What Paul outlines there is a salvation that is given by God, totally free of of any works or any merit that God that that, that we could accrue. The Bible is very explicit, um, all throughout the New Testament, the Old Testament particularly. That when a man is saved, he's saved 100% wholly by God. It is a gift of His grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not 99.9% and 0.01% me, and 99.99% God. Um, the Bible is very explicit. But the nature of man is corrupt. He's at enmity with God. He does, he, see, he does not seek after God. He's a child of wrath, and he's a child of disobedience. He's walking in his own way, and he doesn't even desire to seek after God. So what does Jesus Christ do in all of His love, His glory, His grace? He determines before the world ever began that He Himself would enter in and He would accomplish what all the old covenant couldn't accomplish. Thus in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, you see this new covenant promised. This new covenant that He would come along and He says, you've broken all the old covenant and you keep walking your own way, but I'm coming to create a new covenant to establish it with you. And one that would, would, would satisfy the wrath of God. One that would um, it's secure uh, the, the salvation of all those who would believe. One that would, would do what the old covenant could not do. And Hebrews teaches us. And Luke teaches us that the new covenant of His blood was the, that, that, that Jesus Christ's blood was, was the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant was inaugurated by Christ Himself and secures the salvation of all those who would ever believe. And that in that covenant is also the require, he, he fulfills the requirements. He gives the Spirit of God. He regenerates the heart. He makes it alive. Um, and He causes them, uh, Ezekiel and Jeremiah says, to walk in His statutes. That whenever a man comes to Christ, John chapter 1 and verse number 12 teaches us that this was not the will of man. That this wasn't what man would have done. This isn't what man would have constituted. This isn't the plan that man would have made. He says these words, but as many as received Him, to them He gave power, He gave the right to become the children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That the church was born in the mind of God before the ages began. And it's born in time and reality solely upon the gracious work of Christ 
in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That Jesus Christ gives birth in the New Testament um, in time and reality to the church. And at the same time, it's, it's hard in our thinking to think about the church prior to that. Because there is a reality of the church in the Old Testament. It's not the same as the New Testament church. But there is a reality that, that those who um, in Christ um, believe the promise of the gospel in the Old Testament and secured the benefits of the salvation that Jesus Christ would finally do in the New Testament. You say, what are you saying? That believers in the Old Testament were saved exactly the same way. How? By looking forward to Christ and taking hold by faith. That's why Abraham believed and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. Hebrews teaches us that no man was ever saved outside of Jesus Christ and His righteousness. But what we have in the New Covenant, what we have in the New Testament is the full and final revelation of God's purpose in time and in history. So what is the church? The church is that thing, that people, that group for which Jesus Christ fashioned all of human history to enter into and to die for and to purchase on His behalf. That He secures for Himself by His own blood a bride out of the nations. Um, it's like in the Old Testament when a servant would go and find a, 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 a servant or a, a, a bride for um, Abraham would send a servant, a slave in a sense, to go out and to find a bride for his son. Um, the father today sends the servant out to go into the world to the nations and find a bride for his son. That's the church. The Bible speaks of it in many ways. He speaks of it as a body. He speaks of it as a bride. He speaks of it as a, a building. He speaks of it as a flock. He speaks of it as a field. Why well, to teach us a little bit about who we are and what we are to do in Christ. And that's why we come to the book of Ephesians. That's why we come to Ephesians chapter number 2. And we discover that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God's purpose from all eternity finds fulfillment as He establishes what He refers to in verse number 13 as a new man, which is nothing other than the church. That He buys this church, He buys this people, He purchases this bride so that out of His rib would be born a man would be born a new man made up of the nations of not only Gentiles but also Jews who would come along just as Adam is created in the garden um, and Eve is created, created out of his rib um, to come alongside and to aid Adam in taking dominion over all the earth and spreading the image of God. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, comes into the world and by the, the, the piercing of his ribs and the giving of the ghost, it gives birth to a, a, his bride out of his side, who would come alongside him and, and, and with all authority given to him in heaven and on earth, they're to go and take dominion and spread the image of God through the preaching of the gospel to the ends of the earth to fulfill that final mandate that um, Adam himself could not fulfill. And that's what you see. And you see it's 100% the total work of God that will finally and fully culminate one day in a great display of God's glory. That's what you read in Ephesians chapter number 3 and verse number 8. To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. Why? That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, 
which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's an interesting phrase there in verse number 10. That, God, that, that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in heavenly places. And there is a sense in which you say, well, why did God do that? There is a sense in which the text here tells us that God did it simply to display His glory uh, to the principalities, the powers, and heavenly places. There's coming a culmination day at that great day at the end of the age in which all the world, universe, and everything in it um, will um, stand before Christ and they will see His manifold wisdom and glory. That it's somewhat of a show and tell that's being prepared and it's quite incredible. That's what He says... Uh, in, in Ephesians 2, that we're seated with Him in heavenly places, in heavenly realms in Christ, in order that in the coming ages He might show the world the incomparable riches of His grace expressed and the kindness to us in Jesus. In other words, He's going to, at the end of the age, have this amazing event. And He's going to bring people along. He's going to bring the angels. And He's going to bring the principalities and the powers, even rulers possibly in dark places. And at the great wedding day, he's going to say simply this, look at her. Look at her. Do you know what she once was? It's going to be amazing. I mean, it's going to be a wedding day of wedding days. You know, right before the service, got to the glory in one of the, uh, a, a wedding that happened just within the last couple of weeks. And just to be a part of that, to see a little bit of that, um, is, is just to be elated in an expression of love that they have for one another in Christ and what He ordained in that. And you think about the celebration that it was and the glory of seeing the beautiful bride come down in the train. And, 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 and God is saying, Jesus Christ Himself is saying that He purchased before time began. I mean, in, in His mind and thinking a plan um, that was carried out um, 2,000 years ago that is preparing for one great and fantastic wedding in which the bride will come down in all of her glory. And the world, the angels, as they do even this day, will wonder at the grace of our Lord. The focus won't be inherently upon us, but it will be upon the Christ who accomplished that thing in us and made uh, people who were uh, undeserving and ugly and lacking in beauty and unholy and ungodly. And they're going to look and they're going to say, that was what they were and look what He did? That's the church. That's the church. You see? You, and... and it's going to be like just them walking down the aisle. You know? Can you imagine the lady at the well who's walking down the aisle and he says, look at her. She had five husbands. She had a live-in lover. But look at her now. Look how beautiful she is. Look at Zacchaeus now in the fullness of his stature. Not a little guy anymore. Look at him. Look at you. Look at me. Look at Damon. You know, 
You could be a part of that grand um, wedding day in which the bride comes down and Jesus Christ is going to say and He's going to point towards the bride in whom the grace is bestowed and displayed upon. And in a sense, it's going to reflect back upon Him in, in that great day and all the glory is going to be given to Christ because of what He accomplished in the bride. You know, and as a result, what are they going to say? You know, they're going to say, man, that lady, that woman at the well, man, she really turned over a new leaf. Praise, praise God for that. You know, you know one, it was a great thing that she saw and came to her senses and walked the other way and just became a better person. You know, got plugged into religion, started going to a church. Man, thank God that, that she, she wised up on her own. Like, is that what's going to be said? You know, as a result of her endeavors or his endeavors, you know, Zacchaeus, he's no longer a cheat. Like he's done with those things. He turned over a new leaf and he's walking his own way. Good job. You know? Way to pull yourself up by your bootstrap, Zacchaeus. No. That's not going to be the conversation. That's not going to be the display. That's not going to be the glory. Now, as a result of the invasion of the power from outside of themselves, they're made into a brand new man and placed into a whole new community. A divine institution, not of human will, not of human wisdom. A spiritual union, not an external commitment. Yes, there's external dimensions to it, which we'll see in the coming weeks. But without the spiritual union, the being in Christ, the external element, the, the baptism, the, the church membership, the this, the that, the things, the songs, everything, the prayers that we did this morning, listen, it's meaningless if it's not in Christ. That's the point, right? That that day, Jesus Christ in times past with the Father and planned to bring about a plan to, to birth a bride out of His sacrifice. Why? So that one day um, it could be displayed to all the worlds. This is the church. Saved. Alive. Transformed. This is who we are. We are the product of the faithfulness of God to keep His own Word and the gracious character of a Savior who would enter into the world on our behalf. This is who we are. Charles Wesley wrote this, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That that is who we are. You say, I knew that. I knew that. I knew that. Yes, but did you know that? That's who you are. Like if you're in Christ today, then you were in the mind of God even before the ages began. Jesus Christ Himself died on your behalf. Why? So that one day you would be secure in Him such that you would be a token of His grace to display even to the angels and to all the world and all the universe and all of creation of the glories of Christ. That's it. Like that's where you're going. That's where you're heading. You know, and in some sense, we need to know all of that to know why we're here and what we're to do. Why? Because in this time and in this reality, that that is who we are to be. You know? Like Romans chapter number 8 teaches us that we are predestined to be conformed to the very image of Christ. That that's our goal. That's the thing we're striving for. Right? That the church was born in the mind of God to be born in time and reality to be finally and fully uh, made like Him at the end of the age and until that time the, the, the Bible is explicit and clear that Christ purchased it not just for that time but for now. 
that you and what is bestowed upon you here and now are benefits and blessings for you to push on to that. That heaven 2,000 years ago in some sense broke into time and reality and the very benefits of Christ are extended to you and Him so that you can live that reality here and now. That's who you're to be. You're not to look and to long inherently for a day in which you'll be something that you're not. Jesus Christ invades the soul in salvation to make you alive and extend to you much of those benefits even here and now. Why? So that you would come under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ not only then, but today. That the church um, was born in the mind of God in time and reality why? To move toward and forward that day. He said, what am I to do in this day? And this is the thing we're going to flesh out in the coming weeks. And we're going to do it in explicit form. We're going to talk about the nature and the function and all the things, what we are to look like and what we are to be. You know? But you need to understand and know that the church comes under divine rule and reign of Jesus Christ, who is our head. That the church is that entity of which Jesus Christ purchased for the purpose here and now to come under the divine rule and reign of Jesus Christ who is our head. That the church finds its purpose and power particularly and only in submission to the governing rule of God over us. Ephesians chapter 1, we read that just a moment ago, right? And He put all things under His feet and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all and all. You see, what are we to do as a church? Okay, and If we are the church and we've been made alive in Christ, we have all benefits in Him. So what am I to do? Mark chapter 8. You know, the gospel is to take up your cross, follow Jesus. You know, um, it, is, it is to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus. Right? But what does that look like? What does a life in Christ look like? It looks like a body who is in direct connection and submission to the head. That's what it looks like. That the church, it is incumbent upon us as a congregation during this time to find our power and purpose in submitting to the governing rule of God. Um, and Colossians 1 kind of paints it in a, in, in, in a similar way. Um, in Colossians chapter 2, what you see is you see that there's a danger in the church. And the danger in that church is the danger in so many of our churches. And it's a danger in maybe our mind and thinking as well. I know it is mine. Right? He urges them to abandon the philosophies of men and the traditions and the syncretism of the day. Right? What was the problem in those days? The problem in those days was they wanted to take their old religion, they wanted to take their traditions, they wanted to take this and that, and they wanted to include it into the relationship with Christ. And he's saying, guard yourself against that. And in Colossians chapter 1, he, he echoes exactly what's here in Ephesians chapter 1, that Christ is your head. Christ is the governing rule. Christ is the king. Christ is the rule. Christ is the authority. And that's the nature of the New Testament church. That's the nature. How then do we, as believers in this church, saved by the grace of God, ensure that we are not caught up in the spirit of the age and um, 
and creating our own church. That's the nature, right? That's the danger. The danger is for us to come here and to think about it like a man-made institution, right? We can just bring together whatever we want, and we can bring together all of our uh, things, and you know, and it's nothing more than a social institution, right? And that's the danger. The danger is, is that we come together, and it's like a, a, a Christian Rotary Club, you know? A lot of people think that that's the way that the, the, the church is born, and the churches are born today, and a lot of them are. A lot of them are. And maybe this one was too, you know? I think about five years ago, and I think about the purpose. I think about why I started this thing, you know? I think about this, and I think about that, and some days I wonder, you know? You know, you get one Reformed Christian, and you get two. It's like, it's like, it's like kids, you know? I got kids, I know. <laughs> and I was a kid once, I know. You get two kids together, and you get one boy. Like, you're a boy, I'm a boy. Man, let's start a boys club. <laughs> we got it in our home too, right? Probably shouldn't have started it. We got, we got man caves and man secrets, and you're excluded and this and that. You know, it's like, I like the bowl, you like the bowl. Let's just bowl together. You know, let's start a club. Churches are like that, you know? Well, I'm a Reformed Christian. You're Reformed. I believe the Bible. You believe the Bible. Let's just form a Bible club, you know? Like, it seems like a great idea. But oftentimes that's exactly the way that it ends and that's the way that it goes. Like it seems like a good idea and we just come together with common interests and, and this and that and, and we continue to, to operate off of our common interest. Ephesians chapter 2 speaks of a church that's that, that, that the only common interest, the thing that brings them together, Gentile and Jew, enemies um, with God and enemies apart from God and enemies with each other, that this gospel tears down the wall of partition and separation and we come together in Christ under His authority, His rule, and His reign and we govern our lives as such. That this church... So how do believers in any generation or in this generation assure that we are not caught up by which that is um, the, the rule of the day, that which is um, the, 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 the fad, that is this? Just simply, we... We come to an understanding of what is true. And the greatest antidote to false philosophy and teaching and to human speculation um, is a thoroughgoing experiential grasp of basic Christian doctrine of what is the church and who is Christ and who are we in Him. Who are you in Christ? As a result of what He did, what do you owe, what is owed to Him, Right? So in a sense, we move from the question of have I been included in Christ? Am I saved? Have I been regenerated? Have I been made alive? Am I a Christian? To asking the question today that, that, I, that, that I've been pushing towards and really working at um, this question, am I submitting to Christ? Who is the head? Who is the head? And I ask that as a church. Honestly, God, I do. You know? I ask that as a church. I ask as a church this morning and in the coming weeks, like what we're doing here, like is this it? You know? Is this a true church, first of all? I mean, and, and, and in that, is this a church that desires to be more like Christ? You know? Or are we stuck in the philosophies of men and we've come together and we've just tried to start a reformed club in which we can you know, bump elbow to elbow and give high fives on Sunday and say, go get them, man. You know? Or are we that entity 
that was born out of the very rib of Christ as He gives His life on, on Calvary. And thus grace is bestowed to us in such a way that our gratitude for Him and new life demands that we take up our cross and follow Him. Not only as individuals, but as a church. You know? Like when you read the book of Acts, and I read the book of Acts, is this really it? You know? Is this what God intended? Or do we have room as a church to grow? You know? When I read the New Testament, I'm convicted. I'm convicted in the books of Acts about prayer. You know, I'm convicted about my own preaching. I'm convicted about study. I'm convicted about fellowship. I'm convicted about worship. I'm convicted about this. I'm convicted about um, uh, church organization. I'm convicted about men. I'm convicted about this and I'm convicted about that. And, I, and, and, and I, I'm begging God to just take us to the Word and just to, to, to just show us to, and to, to be and to emphasize that which God desires in a church. You know? What does God emphasize in a church? You know? I read through the New Testament sometimes and I think one of the things that He emphasizes most of all is love. You know? Is love. You know, I thank God for the love that God has expressed in this church. I don't look out there and I don't think that it's not love, you know. But I, try, I say that to try to get you to think differently about the church, you know, because you look for a church and I look for a church. Or you look for this and you look for various things, you know. You look for the right style of music and you look for the right uh, uh, liturgy and you look for the right this and that, for eloquent prayers or for, for, for this and this and this. You know, is that what God emphasizes though? Honestly. When you go to John chapter 17 and you read of the high priestly prayer of our Lord, like what does He emphasize? I was reading this and just convicted in my heart, you know, um, the other day. I think it's John chapter 17 and verse number eight, or 20. Jesus prays for you. Jesus prays for me. And this is His desire. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they, may, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. You understand that? At least a little bit. If that is flooring, that God in human form, incarnate, Jesus Christ Himself prays to the Father and begs the Father by virtue of an effectual, fervent prayer that the church, those whom the Father has given Him in the world, through the Word, that they may be one as you and I, Father, are one. Jesus' prayer. Imagine that. Thomas asks a question. Jesus looks and He says, If you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. Imagine the unity and the purity within God the Father as they are essentially the same. Jesus looks to the Father and He begs that when the bride is given, that the bride would have the unity between the Son and the Father. You know? Like when you try to find a church, or you look around and you pray for growth in the church, like do you pray that? You know? I know whenever I was looking around for a church or looking at churches to stay at, you know, I had to have the right translation. I had to have this and I had to have that. Um, but, 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 have, but have we ever just looked and said, God... Like, give me a congregation of people that I can just be one with. Whom I'll love like Jesus Christ loves. 
whom I will lay my life down like Christ did, whom, whom we will be one, you know? God, give me a congregation in the church in whom like, I can come into and we can just be one like you are with Him and one, we're on the same page, we're loving, we're, we're going about our business and doing the will of the Father. You know? Is that what you're looking for in a church? Not only have I been included in Christ, but am I submitting to Christ who is the head? Indeed, you have been placed into Christ if you're His. And we work out the rest of it under His headship in which that we grow. And the only foundation and basis upon which those of us who have been called through the teaching of the Bible, the enabling of the Spirit, um, to mediate the rule of Christ's headship among His people is that we have the Bible preached and we conform to His Word. You know? You know some of you are probably looking for churches. Um, some of you are looking at this church. And you're wondering... Are we the right church? I don't know. I don't know. You know? But if you're looking for a perfect church, you'll never find it. The Bible doesn't speak of perfect churches. But the Bible does speak of true churches. You know, in ages past, um, true churches um, have been defined as those churches who rightly understand the gospel and preach it and minister the sacraments appropriately. And that all it has to do is with the gospel. The church that we need to be is not a perfect church, but a true church. And you need to recognize that when you come to a church, it's not a perfect church, it's a true church. If it's a perfect church, um, you should probably not go because we'll all ruin it, right? The old joke. Um, that we should desire not to be... So that, that's not what I'm advocating for. I'm not advocating for a perfect church as we go through the doctrine of the church. But I am advocating for a true church. A true church that is spirit-filled understands the gospel and understands what their goal, purpose, and duty in the world is, right? And it's not to be perfect, but it is to drive on to perfection. That that should be our goal. That when you see a New Testament church in the book of Acts, they're not perfect. They're growing in the Lord, you know? They're growing in Christ. They're laboring together and they're pushing each other on in faith. And that's my desire. That throughout this series, that we are reminded of what the church is. Who the church is. And what the church's personal or purpose in this world is. I have a great concern for the church at large. I do. My concern is, is that um, the concern that I've had for some time. That it simply won't survive. Why? Because many of them are constituted and led not by true church, but by themselves. Many even unbelievers. But I don't worry about the true church, and honestly, I don't worry about most of you. I don't. I don't worry about churches who know that they're in Christ. I don't worry about churches that, that are alive. Um, no need to pine over the church at Philadelphia in Revelation. The church of brotherly love. No, no need to, 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 to pine over the church. I believe it was at Smyrna. The persecuted church that continued to persevere in Christ. It's the other churches that I worry about. It's the churches that are steeped in sin. It's the churches that are secretistic. It's the churches that are man-made. It's the churches that are Reformed Club or Baptist uh, ministries or this or that. The question that I have for us, and I try to, and I'm praying to God to show us throughout this 
series is that is that are we a true church? Are we a true church? And if we are a true church, then we are a growing church. And if we are a growing church, then we are a changing church. And if we are a changing church, then something should change. You know? The thing that, that worries me um, is not even sin in a church. Um, it's what they do with it. It's the lack of repentance and the lack of faith and the lack of moving forward. True churches are churches and that are willing to recognize their own sin and their shortcomings because they've come under the headship of Jesus Christ who is the rightful rule and reign and the kingdom in their hearts. And that in the coming days, as we come to the word of God, I'm, I'm asking us as a church, those that make Christ Bible Church their home, for us to honestly, be honest with ourselves, lay ourselves bare as we come together in unity for the gospel's sake and for Christ under the headship of Christ. And we look around and we say each other and we have conversations and we think, like, is this it? Is this it? You know? Is this it? Or is there some area in which we can push on to Christ? Is there some area that we can um, sacrifice and lay aside and say, man, we need to be more like Jesus in this? You know? And I know that there is because I know that I do. You know? One of the dangers is, is to, to, to make a true mark of the church, you know, um, you know, strong theology or the right doctrine or this or that, you know, and fail to see that, that, that a church is to be evangelistic or a church is to be prayerful or a church is to be this or that. And I can tell you today that we are not where we need to be, you know. And throughout this um, series, I'm begging you to understand who you are, what Christ came to accomplish, who we are in Christ, what He, what we will culminate in that day. And when we have that before us, we run after that. With everything that we are and everything that we have because that's all that really matters. You know? That Jesus Christ Himself stands before us as the emblem of what we ought to be and what we ought to do. And thus, with that image ever before us, we strive after that. You know what? That's a hard thing to do. That is a hard thing to do. To recognize and to realize like I don't have it all together. But that's the glory of that great day whenever I come down the aisle. You know? And people look at me and say, I didn't, man, I didn't think he was going to get in. You know? I've had people tell me before, there's no reason you should be saved today. I know that's what makes it so amazing. Right? You grow up in a a family with a broken home and a mother and father that didn't um, didn't go to college or didn't even graduate high school, um, grow up in drug and alcoholic infested apartments, live in probably twenty different places. By the time I was eighteen, um, with people doing drugs upstairs and across the way, and going you know to a school that was just rampant with all these things, and you wonder why in the world God made His way towards me, you know who was day in, day out, openly rebellious and steeped in ungodliness and a hundred other things. And one day Jesus is not going to say, look at him, but he's going to say, look at me because look at what he is now. Amen. You know? That's the grace of God. And that, that glory should be, should be bursting forth out of this church now. You know? 
Like as the love that permeates us because of the grace of God, not only of what we will be, but because of what we are and what we used to be, that that transformation comes outside of ourselves when we should be everywhere and anywhere but here and doing our own thing and walking our own way apart from God and apart from the world, just selfish and self-righteous and earning our own way by our own strength and our own intellect, exalting ourselves and Jesus Christ comes in and He takes that rebel sinner who is at enmity with Him, who loved Himself and Himself alone, and He makes Him a child of the most high king you know like that is like that is what the world needs to see doesn't need to see our religious garb and our suits and ties and our white collars and our and our and our and our, and our wonderful compositions and this and that you know it needs to see the true worship of god is as exhibited as we are conformed to this very image and character and in nature when they come in they don't need to see an adulterous prostitute of a of a, of a church they need to see the beauty, or, or and then they don't need to see a supermodel all dressed up, ready to dance and perform and entertain as if you can make the gospel more beautiful than what it already is. Right. You know? We just need people to be what Christ made them to be. That's it. Like therein lies the beauty. You know? Therein lies we, we need not abandon the truth and we need not dress up the truth. We need simply to be what God made us to be. And that's Him. That's like Him. That's His nature, His character. God, give us that. So when people come in and they see the fellowship and they see the love and they see the care and they see you know the, the, the preaching and they see this and they see us fall short, man, but they see us love every minute of it because that's where we meet Christ. You know? I hate failing in my own flesh, but I love it. In the sense that he comes and he picks me up and he makes him more like himself. It's like you come here this morning and you don't see the glory of the world and you don't see the pomp and you don't see the circumstance and you don't see the bells and you don't see the whistles. But I pray to God that you don't also see a prostitute and you don't see a supermodel. All you see is the bride of Christ as she really is in all of her mess and at the same time in all of her glory. You know, as we love one another with a love that Christ has given to us. That's the glory of the gospel. Like that's what he came to do. That's who he came to save. And that's what the world and the, and the principalities, the angels, and even the demons themselves will look and they'll say, what in the world is that on that great day? Let's have some people say that today. Like as they walk into your home, as they walk in, they see your family, as they walk into this church, like may they see that. You know, they don't see what the world offers. You know, because we can dress it up and we can dress it up nice and I know how to get people and I know what the things to do and I know how to work it out. Like, I'm not going there though, you know? Because I'm not interested in dressing up a prostitute, you know? And, and, and pawning her off as Christ's bride. We will labor to be like Christ and Christ alone or we will not labor at all, you know? We must. This is imperative. This is why we're here. And that's why we read that um, Romans chapter number 11. You know, that may all glory be to Him and to Him alone. And may that be our mark. And may that be the true mark of this church. And may that be where we're headed. And if tomorrow or next week we can find how to do that better, then let us do it and let us run after it hard. You know? Let us labor and let us sacrifice whatever it takes that he may be known not only here and in this community, but across the nations. That his beauty would be displayed not only at the end of the age, but because he came and invaded a small little church 
in the midst of Kingsport, Tennessee, and gave them a love and grace that they never deserved before. And it's evident by the way they interact with one another and the way they interact with the community. Like, how do you do that? You recognize the day that Jesus Christ is Lord, and He's head. And if He saved me, then He dictates who I am and what I do. And uh, it's hard some days, but I love every minute of it. I love every minute of it. The difficulty, the struggle, why? Because it only leads to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we love and thank you and praise you for the glory of Christ. God, we thank you for the privilege it is just to be in Him, Father. We praise you for the um, grace that you've extended and bestowed upon us, Father, undeserving, hell-bound sinners, rebellious and totally self-serving and self-exalting, Father, at enmity with you, Father. Not only were we walking our own way, but we would have stolen the crown and been in the crowd that murdered the Christ himself. There's no doubt about it, Father, but you entered in through your Son by his Spirit, God, and you pierced the only begotten, the purest of all nations, the purest of all human God. And you did it for him and you did it for us. You secured, Father, our salvation, but you also secured our sanctification. God, not only will we be beautiful on that one day as a result of the glory of Christ, but we will be beautiful today if we will submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So, Father, may you permeate our, our lives in so many ways, not only as individuals, but as a body. God, may you just, by your grace and by your mercy and by your spirit, Father, just make us more like your son. Father, um, that we don't have any uh, notion that we're going to be perfected here and now, Father, um, in the ultimate form, but may you perfect us a little bit more today than what we were tomorrow or what we were yesterday, Father. And may we be tomorrow more than we are today because we've met with Christ and communed with him. We're in him, Father. And may the world see your son died for the nations. There are people within Kingsport, Tennessee and the surrounding tri-cities, Father, for whom you died and you deserve them, Father. So may we preach the gospel to them, not only in voice, but in deed. God, and may the light shine forth with ever brightness, Father, not because we are um, capable and not because we are glorious and not because we are um, crafty, Father, but because we are beautiful simply because you've placed your character and nature upon us. God, we need you now to make this alive in our hearts and souls, Father. We need you now and to come under your headship. We need you now, Father, to make us more like your son. So we leave this in your hands recognizing the responsibility for us to pursue you. So I pray as a church we will pursue you in the coming days to know, Father, what, they, what we are and who we are and what we are to do. God, I pray that at the end of it we would not be the same, that something would have to change because we've communed with him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.